0: Hi there and welcome to my show, The Ship No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's guest is a story coach and the author of Wired for Story. The Writer's Guide to Using Brain Science to Hook Readers from the Very First Sentence, as well as the book Story Genius, How to Use Brain Science to Go Beyond Outlining and Write a Riveting Novel Before You Waste Three Years Writing 327 Pages That Go Nowhere, both published by 10 Speed Press. She's worked in publishing at W.W. Norton and as an agent at the Angela Rinaldi Literary Agency and as a producer on shows for Showtime, and Court TV, and as a story consultant for Warner Brothers and the William Morris Agency. Since 2006, she's been an instructor in the UCLA Extension Writers Program, and she's on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts MFA Program in Visual Narrative in New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Lisa Cron.
2: Thank you for having me. There's nothing I love more than talking about story.
0: This season's podcast has relied very heavily on discussions surrounding the business side of writing. We've looked at marketing your work. We've looked at pitching to agents. We've looked at pitching to editors, et cetera, et cetera. And today, I really want to focus on the craft of writing and who better to speak to than you, Lisa. So let's dive in. Why don't you tell us what the single biggest mistake is that writers make? The
2: biggest mistake that writers make is that they think that the story is about the plot, and they think that if they come up with a plot, if they come up with something really rip-roaring that is objectively, or seems to them anyway, objectively dramatic, and then they start writing and they write really beautiful, lovely, luscious sentences, they will have a story. And that is 100% not how it works. I think that is why they say that out of 100 people who sit down to write a first draft, that's hundred people just to write a first draft, only three people will make it to the end of just that first draft. And then, of those people, now imagine if you finish the first draft, and then fully you know that now you go back and you're going to do some rewriting and you're going to really get it ready to go. So, of the people who then go back, do some rewriting, and decide, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this out into the world. I'm gonna I'm gonna query an agent the number out there is what they say is, is that agents reject 96% of the manuscripts that are submitted. I personally believe having been, having been an agent and having read manuscripts for more decades than I want to admit to being alive. And I'm talking to my own agent about that. I think that number is low. I would put it at more like 98%. And that means now that of those three people who finished, well, let's imagine that two are going to get to the place, you know, where they're finally going to send it out to somebody. And that means that of those, of those two people, (laughs) it's like 98% of them, are going to get rejected which means like what's left an arm maybe it's going to get you know get accepted and if you think okay well forget it i'm not going to go the traditional route because you know agents and editors are meanies and you know they don't know anything and i'm just going to get it out there and i'm going to self-publish it and the truth is most self-published books sell at most 100 150 copies and let's face it most of those are to family and friends <laughs> who say they read it and loved it, but you never really know. The thing is, writing's hard. It is re- it is hard. It's a hard thing to do. And anyone who tells you it's easy is trying to sell you something. It is not an easy thing to do. Writers write because they have to. They don't write because I've got to get words on a page. They write because they have something to tell. They have a point they want to make. They have something they want to take out into the world. And that is really what keeps them going. But figuring out, what that is and what that point is and what that story is and creating it before you long before you get to page one is the thing that then, Creates those manuscripts that people really do want to to read. I agree most with that. What's that, Dorothy Parker quip? I hate writing. I love having written.
0: Let's discuss the difference between plotting and pantsing, because this is the discussion that most writers have as to which category they fall into. And you pretty much saying that neither method actually works. So, so what is plotting? What is pantsing? And and why don't they work?
2: Thank you for asking me this question. I've spoken at writers' conferences where you're you know you're filling out your little badge in the beginning, and it'll. it'll they'll ask you to put on your badge. Are you a pantser or are you a plotter? You know, as if those are the only two things you can be. And I say a pox on both your houses. So a pantser, it's literally riding by the seat of your pants, which means, you know, you get some idea, you think you know kind of what you want. And then you just sit down and you just start letting it come out. You just start writing, you see where it takes you, you unleash your creativity, as they say. And then somehow, you know, the assumption is, is, you know, by magic, a story is going to appear. That's what pantsing is. Plotting is where you, again, in the beginning, you know, pretty much kind of decide you've got some notion of what you want to have happen and what that story might be. And then you sit down and you create a plot. You might've heard that the plot points, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that's just plotting out the events in your story. So hopefully you have what you assume is going to be uh, an external cause and effect trajectory, a pox on both your houses, because neither one works. I mean, here's the thing. If I could just give you a tiny bit before I tell you why neither one works, and this will help it make more sense, which is all stories begin and medias res, which means in the middle of the thing, which means page one of your novel is actually the first page of the second half of your story. If you're thinking, well, the second half of what, it means you have no story. Stories begin long before page one because stories are about how somebody walks onto the page has an agenda from long before the story started they have that very story specific agenda before they have any idea the dark and stormy night you're about to toss them into and then when they go forward dealing with whatever problem they're going to meet right there on page one it didn't come out of the blue because let's face it problems almost never come out of the blue even you know when they completely feel like they did most problems hit critical mass at the point where we absolutely have to deal with them. And they tend to be, you know, the unintended consequences of all of the decisions or or eight particular decisions we've made. So a story is about how that external thing is now going to force your protagonist to go after something they want and have wanted since long before the story started, probably since early childhood. And what's going to stop them from getting it is what I call your story's misbelief your protagonist's misbelief. And a misbelief, you might think, wait a minute, doesn't that that sounds kinda like 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 a fatal flaw, right? Like a, a character walks onto the page and they've got a fatal flaw and you know, hopefully the plot's gonna have them wake up and realize the error of their ways. I would never use that. I think I might have used it in Wired for Story, and I'm embarrassed that I did, I'd never use that term again because it sounds really judgmental, you know, <laughs> like you have a flaw and there's something wrong with you. I mean the other term you might have heard is is a wound, which is closer to it, but it just sounds so victim-y, like you're wounded and hopefully the plot is going to heal you. Now, obviously, both those things could be true, but a misbelief is a misbelief about human nature. It's about the way that people treat each other and what we think that we need to do in order to have our needs met. And here's the thing. We all have misbeliefs about human nature. We all have defining misbeliefs, just like your protagonist. I can't tell you how many writers I've worked with who've said, I was looking for my protagonist's misbelief. And I found my own because we've all got them. So misbelief comes in early in life. It's something on the level of you know, the nicer somebody is to you, the more they're actually trying to get in and manipulate you and use you. So that would be a misbelief. And it's something, the reason it comes in early in life, you may have heard of what's called Maslow's triangle or it's pyramid of needs, right? Abraham Maslow was an American psychologist. And he said, okay, we as humans have this pyramid of needs, the top of the pyramid, the thing we need, you know, the, the highest need is connection and sense of purpose. But at the bottom of that pyramid. The first thing we need is food, water, shelter. And that's simply not true because there's something that we need before that. And that is we need someone who cares enough about us to give us those things because as a baby or a child, you can't get them on your own, like not at all. So as children, we are wired to try to figure out how the world works. And again, I don't mean this in the completely transactional way it sounds, you know, like what do I need to do to get my needs met? But that's what we're looking for so that when our family treats us in a particular way. We don't think, well, my family and my parents are like this, but other people are different out there. We think this is the way people are. This is what the world is like. So a family that would inculcate a notion of, you know, the nicer someone is to you, the more they're trying to use and abuse you. We don't think, wow, you know, other people are different. We go, wow, that's a truth. That's an ad- adaptive truth, because in that family, you probably, you know, really needed to be careful because the closer they got, the more they really were going to try to ask you to do something that was definitely going to go against your self-interest. So that we feel that's a truth that we've learned and we're lucky to learn it early because it's going to, you know, help us navigate the world. Now you can imagine if that was your misbelief, and I'm saying this in general, because misbeliefs end up being much deeper and stickier. And, you know, and by the time you get to where the story starts, it's been absorbed really into how the sees everything. But to talk about it again in general right now, if you have that misbelief, the nicer someone is, the more they're trying to use and abuse me, you can imagine that comes into your life and you really embrace that at the age of nine. You're going to be misreading people all the time. Your teachers, your, your friends, when you start getting old enough to have romantic relationships, and you're probably going to pick up supporting misbeliefs. Now let's imagine that what you want is connection, is somebody who really gets you. Now you can see how that misbelief, which you think is protecting you, is actually keeping you from getting what you want and it is now ricocheted through your life causing you to make story specific decisions because you never want to take a character and do just a general birth to when the story starts bio which is as worthless as knowing nothing you want to trace the specific misbelief that your story is going to take on because the goal of the plot is going to be to disabuse your, your protagonist of that misbelief but it is now ricocheted through your protagonist's life causing them to make the decisions that probably land them there on page one and then the job of the plot is to force them to go after that thing they've always wanted in whatever way it's going to manifest. But in order to do it, scene by scene by scene by scene, a scene simply being a unit of story, you probably have also heard of those methods of like the index card method, you know, write down everything that's going to happen and move the index cards around. If you can move index cards around, you don't have a story, full stop, because stories are cause and effect. But it is that journey from coming in and going after what you want up until the place where hopefully toward the aha moment at the end, which is where your story is going to make its point when the protagonist realizes and sees their misbelief for what it is, which is wrong and has been holding them back, every scene is moving them toward that, not in a row, right? Because two steps forward, one step back. So the whole point of all of that is that coming back to the question that you asked, think about all that you therefore have to know before you get to page one. Think about not only all you have to know about your protagonist, what they want, why they want it, what it means to them, what that misbelief is. I don't mean know it in the sense of you can do a simple declarative sentence or or bullet points to figure it out, but you've written in-depth scenes Where they've struggled with the pushback they get from that misbelief and then made some difficult decision because in every scene you write, your protagonist or point of view character is going to be forced to make a difficult decision. And that internal struggle between the desire and that misbelief is what gives meaning to what you're writing. That's what gives electricity to the plot. Without that, again, we're about to get to why those other methods don't work. The plot is just a bunch of things that happen. It is that internal struggle that we are hardwired to come for in every single story we read. And the meaning of what's happening up there in the plot is going to come from one place and one place only. And that is how it is affecting your protagonist internally as they're struggling with what the hell to do in each and every scene. It's what I call your novel's third rail. It's where the electricity and meaning comes from. Without that, you have a novel that's either been pantsed or plotted. Because if you don't do this work first, you end up with a novel that truly is nothing but a bunch of things that happen. Because the narrative through line, and you might have heard that, like what's the narrative through line of your novel? And writers think it's the plot. And that could not be less true. Your narrative through line is the evolving internal meaning that your protagonist is reading into what's happening as they head toward that aha moment toward the end. That's what stories are actually about. And again, that is what we're wired for. In fact, I just finished a new book that is actually for the the world as opposed to just the writing world that's coming out in March. And so I was diving even more deeply into the neuroscience of it. And I came across a really interesting study that was done. By a guy named Stephen Brown, a neuroscientist named Stephen Brown in Master University. And he wanted to see when we're first pulled into a story, what's grabbing us? What's pulling us in? And he thought he literally said this in the paper that he wrote. And then in the, as it was uh, written about in the, you know, the popular press, he said he thought it was going to be what Aristotle said, right? Plot first, and then characters come second. He said, which, of course, I hate to argue with Aristotle, but he was like 100% wrong, <laughs> which is what he realized. So he, he you know, wired them up or whatever it is you do to do the functional MRI. And it was just basically, he was reading the headlines, you know, things like, surgeon finds scissors in patient, or, you know, fisherman saves boy from freezing lake, And he found that the part of the brain that immediately came online instantly was the part that mentalizes. Meaning it wasn't the part that went, externally, what's happening? What big dramatic external thing is happening here? It was not that at all. It was, who is this happening to? Whose eyes am I seeing it through? What do they want? What's their motivation? Why does this matter to them? What are they afraid of? That is where we go immediately. In other words, your protagonist's brain is the nerve center, it's the command center of your novel. A novel being a, like, it's like like a Vulcan mind meld (laughs) between your reader and your protagonist. So here's the thing think about it. If you're going to write a novel without doing this work, which I really want to say this is not pre writing, it's not research. This is writing. If you do it without that, it's like saying, okay, I'm going to sit down and pants forward a novel about the most important turning point events in somebody's life who I know absolutely nothing about. Not only don't I know what problem they're facing or what brought it on or why it would matter to them, I don't know what they want. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they're afraid of. I might be able to come up with it in a, they're afraid of spiders and they really want to find true love, which is generic because who isn't? (laughs) Well, I mean, because a lot of people aren't afraid of spiders. Who doesn't want true love? The story comes from the protagonist's path. So if you just pants forward, you literally get novels that are nothing but a bunch of things that happen. And I can't tell you You know, I have worked, as I said, reading manuscripts for more decades than I want to admit to being alive. And in that time, I can't tell you how many manuscripts I've read, where if you asked me, you know, what's it about? I'd say, it's about 300 pages. I have no idea. It's just a bunch of things that happen. And the problem with plotting it out is that you end up with a bunch of external events that may or may not matter to the person who's going to plunk in like a rat in a maze to see What they do given those events. And the problem is, once they become a real person, chances are what you decided they were going to do in chapter one is very different than what that person then would do in chapter three. But they don't have a choice because if they don't do what you want them to do in chapter three, the plot collapses in on itself. So now not only don't they make sense as a character, but the plot stops making sense because nobody would actually do that. And then again, things end up collapsing in on themselves.
3: My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off.
0: To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. That has always been my problem with plotting because I feel like when you've worked out this whole plot, your characters become puppets. They're like these marionettes that you're manipulating to do this and to do that. And so it's like they have no free will and, and agency. But... You've just said that, but something that I also find interesting is that you've said that you don't think that writers going through the whole character profile questionnaire is necessarily helpful either. No, no.
2: No, it's worthless. It's worse than – because – when you're creating a story and you're creating a protagonist who's going to go through a very particular problem that you're going to create, again, and they've got this misbelief that happened early in life that you want to really figure out what that was and how that worked. And they've got, you know, whatever it is they want and really literally where that came from. If you start filling out one of these questionnaires, it's just general generic stuff, you know, like, you know, what's their religion? When did they have the first kiss? What's their favorite song? Who cares? what? Difference does it make? I think that's why writers get completely lost because it's like it becomes very fuzzy. It's just this person. You create the character in order to tell the story and to go through the internal struggle that you want them to. And the only questions you need to ask or to figure out go exactly toward that bad as knowing nothing. And again, the other problem with doing these big bios is just like when you're plotting, you end up with a whole bunch of what they did and know why, you know, well, they went to this school. Well, they like that song. Well, this is their religion. Okay. What does that have to do with anything? Why does that matter? How is that going to affect what's going to happen? I don't know. Well, they went to to, to the school and they decided to become a barber. Okay, why? Why would they want to do that? I don't know. It sounded cool. I mean, that's the problem. They end up being what I once heard someone say about Ronald Reagan's deepest thoughts. You know, you wouldn't get your ankles wet if you waited in them. It doesn't get you anything. It's a whole lot of what and know why and story isn't about the what story's about the why story isn't about what someone does story's about why they did it that's what we come to story for and the only way to know that is to dive deep and create characters who are going to have the problems that you want them to be facing once they get onto page one. But the interesting thing, I mean, as Faulkner said, I love this quote, he said, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. And I'll tell you something, here's something really interesting. I just finished reading a book by a neuroscientist, again, for this book that I just finished writing, and it was literally called, Your Brain is a Time Machine. And you'll find this all over. You know, neuroscience will tell you, and it was the whole, you know, the whole subject of this particular book, which is the sole purpose of your brain is to record past memories in order to predict the future. That's what we do as human beings. That is what we do all the time. The things we remember. I'm sure you've all had this experience where you're introduced to someone and you stand there talking, and after two minutes, you think, "Oh my God, I can't remember their name." <laughs> no one else comes up and I've got to introduce them because you didn't really need to know it. I mean, literally what happens is when something intense happens and your thinking brain has to really figure out what to do, especially if it's, you know, if if you're stressed over it, and these days we're stressed about everything, your amygdala wakes up, which they'll say that that's part of, you know, deals with stress and tension and fear, but it's really all emotion. It wakes up your limbic system and it takes a look and it goes, oh, this is something important. I need to remember this for what." going to happen later. And that is how your brain gives the memory of that particular emotion-coded event, you know, an evergreen backstage pass into long-term memory and it's there so that then later on when something similar happens, you go, wait, I thought X was going to happen because last time it happened that way. Oh, but, and then that's what goes forward. That's where story lives and breathes. That's why, again, as I'm very fond of saying, you know, everything you've been taught about writing is wrong. That's why the most important layer in any story and what pulls us in is backstory. Backstory is laced onto every single page that you write. If it's not, you have a very surface, nothing but a bunch of things that
0: happen. What so many of my students do is they also believe that backstory is super important. And so what they do is they write to page three and then suddenly give 10 pages of backstory. And so they think, okay, backstory is important. And so we're just going to give a chunk of backstory here on page three. So please, can you distinguish between that and and what you are saying now?
2: Absolutely. The truth is though, there are times where getting 10 pages of backstory after, after page one, I can think of one novel in particular that, that that does that. Lots of them do. Lots of them do. But and this is the difference between doing it well and doing it so what you're talking about, I'm, I'm sure, is like an info dump. you know. Because what the writer, the writer is doing it for the reader. The writer is thinking, the reader is not going to understand what's happening here. So I need to step in and fill them in <laughs> so they'll understand what happens next. And you never want to do that. You're absolutely 100% right. Don't. Do that. The way backstory comes in is in service of the character making whatever tough decision they've got to make right there on on page one. And that's why sometimes you can get a lot of backstory. Not it's not plunked in for the reader. It is because that character in that moment is looking into the past to try to figure out what to do now. And from that story present position, because the backstory remains in the story present. It's, it's them trying to figure it out. And backstory is there either, I mean, always to give them insight into what's happening in the moment. And really often what happens when a character is going into, and we need to know, you know, when we're going into some sort of backstory, it's because of what's happening in the moment. Not so the reader will understand it, but because the protagonist or point of view character is trying to figure out why what they expected to have happen didn't because stories are about what happens when our expectations aren't met and as they're doing it they're probing it with that current story present question in mind and often what happens is either they get the information that oh that's why and now they're applying that to what's happening now or what often happens is they look back to the way and think about this in your real life you look back to what happened before and you realize you misinterpreted it <laughs> That what you thought it meant, it didn't. And the sad example of that, because I think probably all of us have had at some point in our lives, this experience, you know, is when you realize, you know, hopefully it's when you're really young and not when you're older, that your significant other has been cheating on you. Right. And when you when you get that definitive piece of information, you look back at all those red flags that you, you know, you you, (laughs) hate using this word because it's so pejorative often. You rationalized away because you trusted them suddenly they are waving like you know like like you know red flags at dawn you can see each and every one of them so clearly that's backstory that's what your brain does it looks to the back wait I thought this uh oh now with this piece of information that changes every the way that I read that entirely and changes how I feel about all of those memories as well. That's how backstory comes in. I mean I can think if you guys want to um Caroline Levitt Wrote a book called Cruel Beautiful World. She's written, I think, I think she I think her fourteenth novel was just published. And the first Chapter of that book is long. It's 33 pages, which is really long for a first chapter. And it opens, and I think the first line says 1969 Lucy runs off with her high school English teacher, William, uh, uh, on the last day of school, a June morning shiny with heat. The first line. And at the end of that chapter, she actually gets in the car and goes off with him. So 33 pages between waking up in the morning and her. And in that chapter, you get her entire. Backstory you get the fact that she And her sister named Charlotte who's She's 16 Charlotte 17 and a half They lost their parents in a car crash they've Been raised by a woman who she thinks Is their aunt she loves Charlotte but Charlotte is pulled away lately because she's going away To college and Lucy doesn't feel smart And she feels abandoned by Charlotte and William Her English teacher really Likes her and she wants to be a writer And he's kind of fostering that in her We see the first time they had set we get everything But we don't get it because Caroline went Well wait a minute you guys in order for you to understand Understand Lucy's situation. Let me, you, let me explain some things to you. We get it because Lucy is trying to figure out and make peace with something that's impossible. And that is, she wants to, she's dying to go away with William, you know, at the end of school, but she doesn't really want to hurt her aunt Iris and her sister Charlotte. Now we all know that's not possible. <laughs> I mean, cause she's intending on going off the grid, disappearing for two years. So if you've got someone you love and suddenly they're gone it's going to disrupt your life in a really painful way. And she wants that to be either not true or somehow okay. That's why she's going over all that stuff. That's why we're getting all that stuff. And it's very clear. It's from her point of view. The novel's not written in the first person. It's actually third
0: person. But that's how we get that. For me, from what you're saying, it seems like, backstory is the space between words it's so often the things that are unsaid you know in the exposition of a novel it's in why the character does something and it's there the tension is there the uh the way they're behaving is authentic but it's not something that the writer is putting on the page in in terms of in terms of words
2: i really disagree with you (laughs) i think that's a big mistake the words need to be there they're in the main character or protagonist's head, as they make sense of it. It's not in the silence.
0: And that's where we're going to leave off on today's episode with Lisa and I disagreeing on backstory. But we're going to pick up the next episode with this argument continued. And we're going to have another guest, Karen Dion, the author of the best-selling Suspense, The Marsh King's Daughter, and the newly published The Wicked Sister, who'll be talking about her take on backstory, which is quite different to Lisa's. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.